encourage you to be taking out your Bibles and turning to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, as we'll be picking up there in just a moment. A couple of weeks ago, we showed this picture of a coffee cup that reads, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. We talked about the fact that it is that it is dangerous for those to take a text out of context, and that sadly, though it may seem somewhat humorous at first glance, it is true. There are those that can take the Scriptures out of context, they twist the Scriptures out of context, and apply them in areas in which they were never meant to be applied. And so the last couple of weeks, we've talked about some text often taken out of context. And we've talked about some passages that are taken out of context and just completely and totally mishandled. We've talked about passages like Ephesians 2 and how some will take and say, you see that we don't need works because it says we're saved by grace. Or passages like Romans chapter 7. When people talk about, see Paul in this state here, this is Paul as a Christian, and we talk about him there and it's a description of him under the old law. When we take what they take and twist and we put it back in its context. Well, tonight we want to bring that series to a close by looking at four more passages, four more texts often taken out of context. But what we've used so far, some texts that are taken out of context and completely and totally mishandled and misused to teach some error or to teach some principle that is not true. Tonight I want to look at four passages that are commonly taken out of context to teach some true principles but that's not what that text is saying. And so let's take these passages this evening, four passages again, and we'll put them back in the context. Some texts that, not just the, the woes of the world, but oftentimes brethren take out of context and apply. The first of those is Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32. In Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32 it reads, Therefore... Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Well, just in a quick reading of the text, we'll understand what we used to typically misuse and misapply what's being said in this text. You see, oftentimes we'll go to this passage and we'll say, okay, what is essential for salvation? And we'll say, well, you see, in Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32 it says, whoever confesses me before men. So we need to confess Jesus. Now, absolutely we are to confess Jesus before one is baptized. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it said that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. In Acts chapter 8 and in verse 37, Philip said to the Ethiopian eunuch, if you believe with all your heart, you may... And he said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He made a confession in that text. Absolutely, we need to confess Jesus is the Son of God before we are baptized. But that is not what Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32 is talking about. Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32 is not Jesus saying that in order for one to be saved, they need to confess me with their mouth. Now, let's take this text... And let's put it back in the context of Matthew chapter 10. If you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, in the context of this passage, 
If we back up into verse 24, Jesus has been dealing with, beginning at verse 24 and going through verse 31, the fact that they do not need to fear. Look at verse 24 through 26. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. He makes the point that the servant is not greater than the master, a disciple is not greater than his teacher. And if then they have called the master Beelzebub, how the, what do you expect them to say of the servants? Well, Jesus is making a point to them. They've spoken ill of Jesus. To those he's speaking to now, don't you be surprised when they speak ill of you, but you do not fear. Do not fear what they say about you. They spoke ill of your master. Now pick up in verse 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak it in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So he tells them in verses 27 through 31, Don't fear what man can do to you. I don't want to fear what is said, but do not fear what they can do to you. There may be those that will persecute you, but do not fear those who can kill your body, but they cannot kill your soul. But rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There is no need to fear those who are in opposition to you when you are doing what is right. He then in verse 32 says, Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 33, he says this, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The two, verse 32 in the confession, and verse 33 in the denial, are inseparably linked. He makes the point that whoever confesses him, he would confess, but whoever denies him, he would deny before the Father who is in heaven. Now, if Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32 is talking about and only about a confession with one's mouth, that is, they say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then verse 33 must of necessity be talking only about verbal denial. That is, one can say over here, I confess Jesus is the Son of God, and if it's limited to just the, the mouth confessing, then the denial of verse 33 must of necessity mean they have to actually say, I do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Instead, it's talking about something else. More about that in a moment. He continues in verse 34 and through verse 39 and makes the point he did not come to bring peace but a sword. A man's enemies will be those of his own house. Do not think he came to bring peace, verse 34. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. There will be those that are divided. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. That's the end of verse 36. He says, He who loves father and mother, verse 37, 
more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, verses 24 through 31 deal with the conduct of not conducting yourselves in fear. Verses 34 through 39 deal with conduct and that you do not need to conduct your, that you need to realize your household will be divided against you, but you do not love father and mother more than me. Now, with that in mind of what's going on in the verses around, let's make the practical and proper application of Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32. The point is, not about a verbal confession, but about a confession by the manner of life. That is, if one conducts themselves in a way worthy of the gospel, if one conducts themselves in a way that Jesus has said in His will, then what they are doing is confessing Jesus by their conduct. Now again, we know that they need to be confessing Him verbally before one is baptized. We saw that. But one needs to confess Him in the way they live their day-to-day lives. Remember when the apostles were being questioned by the, Peter and John were, by the the Sanhedrin council in Acts chapter 4. And as they were talking, they perceived the boldness of them and that they were unlearned and said, these men have been with Jesus. So they knew who they had been with by the way they conducted themselves. In the same way today, people can look at you or I, and if we're living as we ought, they can look at us and say, something's different about that person. That person's living as somebody that believes in God and believes in Jesus. We can confess Him by the manner of life. On the flip side of that, we can deny Him. See, if we live according to God's will, we confess Jesus by our conduct, But if we do not live according to God's will, we deny Him by our manner of life. So somebody's out here and they may be verbally saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the God of the Bible. But over here at the same time, they're conducting themselves in worldliness. What they're in reality doing is they are denying Jesus. By by refusing His will... By refusing what he has said, they are denying him. They may verbally be one saying one thing, but their conduct is showing something else. And so in the same way, we need to live in such a way that we show that we believe in God. So we cannot conduct ourselves in fear of those of this world, not fearing what they may say, not fearing what they may do. But instead, we need to realize that we need to live in such a way that confesses Jesus or acknowledges that we believe in Jesus, that He is the Son of God, and He will reward us. So, Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32, Confess me before men, and I will confess you before my Father in heaven. He's talking about confessing by the manner of life in which we live. Not simply a verbal confession. There's another text we often take out of context, and that's Romans chapter 3 and in verse 23. This is a verse that is very well familiar to us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now the first thing we do when we we take this text is we go straight to saying, now, everybody has sinned. And, And the verse does specifically state, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
But Romans 6 and in verse 23 is not Paul trying to make an argument that everyone has sinned. In fact, he makes the point that all have sinned to prove a separate point, to prove a different point. When we see a breakdown of Romans chapter 3 here, it'll help us. So, we often go straight here to talk about all sin. See, everybody sinned, Romans 6, 23, all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But let's put this text in its context and see what the context of Romans 3.23 is saying and why that's brought up there. Here's how the chapter divides itself. Verses 1 to 8 was advantage of being a Jew. If you remember chapter 1 of Romans was the Gentiles have sinned. Chapter 2, the Jews have sinned. So here in chapter 1, the Gentiles have sinned and face the wrath of God. Jews chapter 2, don't think you're going to escape. You sinned and you will face the wrath of God. Well, then a question would be asked by the Jews, what advantage then do we as Jews have? The first eight verses is dealing with that. But beginning at verse 9 and going through verse 20, he makes the point that all have sinned. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, beginning at verse 9. What then are we better than they? That is, are the Jews, because verses 1 to 8 has been talking about the advantages the Jews have, are we as Jews, he's saying, better than they, that is the Gentiles? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. See, all of them have sinned. If chapter 1, the Gentiles sinned, and chapter 2, the Jews have sinned, that means all have sinned. As it is written, and he quotes from Old Testament passages to prove his point. There is none who is right, none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Let's skip down to verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So he's making the point in 9 through 20 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and in 19 and 20 that there was no justification under the old law. That the old law, they've all become guilty before God, and that by the deeds of that law, no flesh would be justified. So, verse 21 through 31, the righteousness by faith is revealed. Now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, verse 21. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's been arguing in 9 through, uh, verse 9 through 20 that all have sinned, and 21 now through 31, this righteousness by faith has been revealed. Now, again, he's been arguing that all have sinned, and the immediate context of Romans 3.23 has to do with this righteousness by faith. Romans 3.23 appears in this final section of the chapter dealing with righteousness by faith. Now, Let's put that, seeing that context, let's put it what the application is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Why does it occur in verse 23 in the midst of this discussion on righteousness by faith? Here's why. All need salvation. That's the point he's bringing up Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none, he's already been arguing, none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. They've charged all, both Jews and Greeks, they are all under sin. So if all have sinned, all have become separated from God because sin separates us from God. But the righteousness of God that is revealed in 21 and 22 is unto all who believe. Look again at 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this isn't something to the old law. This is revealed separate from the old law. This has been witnessed by the law and the prophets, but it's apart from the law. It's even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now remember back in chapter 1 of Romans. Then in Romans 1 he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation unto all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, here he says in chapter 3 that righteousness of God is revealed and that righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is available in verse 22 to all and on all who believe. Under the old law, that was for the Jews. But now it's for Jew and Gentile alike. For it's to all who believe, for there is no difference. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. That's why all who believe can have this hope. And the reason there is no difference is for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So yes, the Gentiles have sinned. He's made that point in chapter 1. The Gentiles have sinned and been separated from God, but so have the Jews sinned and been separated from God, and both needed salvation. Both needed justification. Both needed forgiveness of sins. Because they all sinned. And now that is available through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is available because He died, that they could have that hope. Being justified freely by His grace... This is the same, same sentence, same thought continued in verse 24. Same thought he began at the end of verse 22. Same thought as verse 23. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, he's made the point that as this righteousness of God is, available, is revealed apart from the law, it's that that is to all and all and all who believe, because there is no difference for they've all sinned and therefore they can all be forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is their propitiation for our sins. So the reason verse 23 is brought up at the time that it is in this discussion is to make the point, you all have the hope of salvation because there is no distinction whether Jew or Gentile because both Jew and Gentile have sinned and needed this forgiveness. That's why he brings it up in Romans 3 and in verse 23. 
Here's another text we often take out of context. Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 27. It's another well-familiar passage to us. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Oftentimes the misuse or mishandle of this is we go straight here and say, you see, we're all going to die. You may have heard it read at a funeral. You see, we're all eventually going to be here because it's appointed to the men that die once. Absolutely. That's exactly what the point is being made in Hebrews 9. Or Hebrews 9 has exactly stated that. But he's stating it not to show the frailty of man. He's stating it to make and prove another point. The point of Hebrews 9 is not about the frailty of man. Well, let's take a look at an outline of Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at the context now. And as we look at the context, here's how Hebrews 9 divides up. Number one, the first tabernacle, 1 to 5. The first part of Hebrews is a note, and that should say outline of Hebrews 9. The, first, uh, the book of Hebrews, the first ten and a half chapters, are on through chapter 10 and about verse 18, is dealing with the fact that Christ is better. So as he's dealing with the fact that Christ is better, chapter 1, he's superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. He continues the thought of angels into chapter 2. Now, the law that he's brought is superior. He's a superior sacrifice. And so he's making all these points about Christ is superior and what he brought is superior. So in 1 to 5, he makes the point of the first tabernacle. And he then comes in 6 to 10 in contrast. Here's the service of this old law. Here's the service of the new law. So he's contrasting. Here's the service of the old, the service of the new. And now here, verse 11 to 14, is the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Again, he's still contrasting the two. Here's the service of the old, the service of the new. Now here, here's this perfect sacrifice of Christ. And Christ is, section 4, 15 to 24, the mediator of a new covenant. This new covenant, that he's contrasted the service of the old and the new. This new covenant, he's the mediator of it. He's the sacrifice under it. And so he then comes, and there should be a fifth point there, that he brings a better sacrifice, is 25 to 28. He brings better, a better sacrifice in 25 to 28. Now, it is during this point of better sacrifices that verse 27 occurs. Go to verse 25 now. Let's read 25 through 28. Hebrews 9, 25 through 28. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as it is, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So the point of this text is of the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is better than the sacrifices under the old law. It's in this that he's talking about in verses 25 through 28. It's the same thought he'll continue on in the chapter 10. And he'll continue that thought on about the fact that the sacrifice of Christ is better. It's a superior sacrifice. Now, 
What then is the application of this? It's appointed to men to die once, and we've put it, we've read those verses around it about the sacrifice of Christ. But what's the point in the text? What's the proper application of Hebrews 9.27? It's appointed unto men to die once, but after this the judgment. Well, what is he saying if he's not talking about the frailty of man and trying to make a point to them about they're going to eventually die? The point he's making is Christ had to die only once. Look again in Hebrews 9.25. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. So under the old law, the high priest had to enter into the most holy place and offer the sacrifices yearly. He had to go in yearly and offer the sacrifice. Those sacrifices, Hebrews 10 will point out, were insufficient to take away sins. Those sacrifices were offered repeatedly. But Christ did not have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. If he had... Uh, should offer himself often, he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, verse 26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. Same sentence, verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. You see, just as we all die once, Christ only had to die once for us to be forgiven of our sins. If you notice in this text in verse 28, or verse 26, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once. You highlight in your Bible, you underline in your Bible, circle or underline that word once. He would have had to suffer Often, but he has it now once at the end of the ages. That's the word hapix. Once. Verse 27. And as is appointed unto men to die once. Same word in verse 27 talking about our death. It's talking about how many times he had to sacrifice himself. We die once. He sacrificed himself once. Now verse 28. So Christ was offered once. Again, same word. It appears three times in these three verses. He suffered once at the end of the ages, just as we die once, he died once. This this word, hapix, rendered once, is the same word used in Jude 3. It means one time for all time. If you remember in Jude chapter 3, Jude was writing to his audience telling them that they needed to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This word that was, this word once for all, this once of Jude 3, is the same Greek word as our text in Hebrews chapter 9. It occurs in verses 26, 27, and again in 28. Just as the word, just as this faith was revealed once, that is, it was only revealed one time for all time. That's why we don't think this revelation today. Just as it was revealed just once, so Christ had to die just once, just as we die just once, in order for us to be forgiven of our sins. So the point of Hebrews 9.27 is, the sacrifice of Christ is better, because He didn't have to be offered repeatedly. 
Hebrews, 9, uh, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 points that out as well. That he didn't have to be offered repeatedly as the sacrifices of the old law. But just as we all die one time, he had to die and sacrifice himself only once in order for there to be forgiveness of sins. By the way, the passage in Hebrews 10 makes the point that every priest stands ministering daily. Because there's still work for them to do. So they stand ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he offered him one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. That is one time for all time. And so Hebrews 9 is not... Point, is not used to point out the frailty of man, but instead he's pointing out the sacrifice of Christ as superior because he had to die only once and to take away sins versus these of the old law that had to be offered repeatedly and did not take away sins. So we've looked at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. For confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. But put it in his context, and so he's talking about confession by our manner of life. Not living in fear of what others may do to us, but living in a way that is pleasing to God. Look at Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We put it back in the context, and the point is that we all have salvation because there's no distinction since we all have sinned. Look at Romans 9, and the fact that he's pointing out that Christ had to die only once, just as we die only once. Now, as we bring this to a close, let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Another well-familiar passage to us. It says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, oftentimes, we go to Revelation 2.10 and say, you see, you need to be faithful till you die. You need to be faithful till the day you die. And we go to Revelation 2.10, see, be faithful unto death. Now, that's true. That we absolutely need to be faithful to the day we die. Paul could come in 2 Timothy chapter 4 with such confidence because he had fought the good fight, he had kept the faith, he had finished the race. See, he kept on to the very end. He was faithful to the end. The problem in Galatians 5 and in verse 4 was they had fallen from grace. You see, they hadn't been faithful unto death. It is possible for one to lose salvation. Absolutely, it is possible. But that is not the point of Revelation 2.10. Revelation 2.10 is not pointing out that they needed to be faithful till the day they died. Let's take it and put it back in its context and see if we can't figure out what he's saying then. Well, the context of Revelation 2, 8 through 11, or, or this section in 8 through 11, is written to the church at Smyrna. Revelation 2 and 3, Revelation 2 and 3 is addressing these churches. And beginning at verse 8 and going through verse 11 of chapter 2 is addressing the church at Smyrna. And the church at Smyrna is a group who is being persecuted. Look at verse 8 beginning. And the angel of the Lord, of the, or the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. 
I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, this is a letter written, a section written to the church at Smyrna that is persecuted. What is being said in this text? If he's not telling them to be faithful till the day they die, what is he telling them? Well, let's make that proper application of Revelation 2.10. Again, the church of Smyrna is being persecuted. He pointed that out, again, verse verse number 9 talks about he knows their tribulation. He talks about those that uh, say they are Jews but are not, that are the synagogue of Satan. He talks about not fearing what they're about to suffer in verse 10. He says some of them will be thrown into tested, in the prison. They will be tested. They will have tribulation. So they need to be ready for the face of persecution. They need to be ready for the face of adversity. They cannot give in to the persecution. So when they're standing against the face of persecution, when there are those that are pressing it around them, when, they, when their life is on the line, they cannot give in. When they're being threatened to be cast into prison, they cannot give in. When they are threatened, they cannot give in. So he's not telling them, be faithful till the day you die. Rather, he's telling them, in the face of all this adversity... You need to be faithful to the point that if it comes to it, you are willing to lay down your life in service to God. Be faithful to the point of dying for the cause of Christ. That is what he's telling them in this text. In the face of all the persecution, in the face of all the tribulation, you be willing to face it, Uh, and take whatever comes, even if it means giving your life in service to God. And then you will have the crown of life. So yes, it's true. We need to be faithful till the day we die. Revelation 2.10, he's making the point. And it's a point we need to remind ourselves of, because though the time is not now, it could come, that we have to be reminded what those at Smyrna were, and that is we need to be faithful to the point that we're willing to die for the cause of Christ. That's, what happened, that's the text of Revelation 2.10. When we put it back in its context, be faithful to the point that you are willing to die in service to God. I hope this study and this series has been beneficial. As we've talked about some texts that are often taken out of context... But as we bring this series to a close, I want to list just a few lessons I hope we take away from this series. Number one, I hope we realize that a text taken out of context is dangerous. We talked about several passages, not uh, not tonight, but in other 
or the two weeks previous in this series about some texts that are often taken out of context and twisted to teach what people want to teach. If you would turn to Second Peter with me for just a second. Second Peter chapter three. In Second Peter chapter three, Peter has been writing to them concerning the coming of the day of the Lord. He's been writing to them about the fact that they need to be uh, the kind of people they need to be in light of the second coming. But he came in verse 14 and said, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, that is, the coming of the day of the Lord that he's been telling them to be looking forward to because it's coming and it, will, and it most certainly will come, despite the doubts of many. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as our beloved brother Paul, according to wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, listen closely, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures." The people that Peter was warning them of was not people that just made something up and decided to write some creed book. It was those that took and twisted the Scriptures to teach what they wanted to teach. It's dangerous when we take a text out of context. And so we need to be able to, to spot that and realize that. Here's something we need to realize as we come to a close. With the passages in particular we talked about tonight, and there are many others that we take out of context to make a true point. If we take a text out of context, even if we make a true point, it can weaken our argument when somebody realizes that we used it out of context. If you're trying to teach somebody about the, uh, what they need to do to be saved, and you take and you, uh, a text and you use it out of context, even though you may make a point that is absolutely true, but you use the wrong text to make that point, if they realize that, that can hurt your chances of teaching them and them obeying the gospel that can weaken all the other points you've made. If they took this text out, what about the others? So we need to be careful to make sure that we're putting text in its context and making proper application. And then we must be able to put the text back in its context. We can't spot the error somebody uses in a text if we can't realize the or look at the text in its context. Somebody may go to Ephesians 2 as we talked about last week and say, you see, there's no need for works because Ephesians chapter 2 said so. And we'll be able to say, well, you see, there's a passage over here in James that says works necessary, and that's the end of that discussion. And it's true, James does say that. But it can be so much more powerful if we go to Ephesians chapter 2 and show them what it's saying. But we can't do that unless we can take a text and look at it and evaluate it in its context. We need to be able to put a text back in its context. It may be that at some point somebody tells you something that off right at the start you don't realize may be wrong, but if you take the text that they're teaching you and you put it back in its context, that's not what that's saying. So we need to be able to take a text and look at it in its context. It will enhance our study of the Scriptures. It will make us stronger Christians, and it will help us in refuting those who may teach error. And it will help us in growing as we are. As we come to a close now, this evening. It may be that there are one or more present who may have never responded in obedience to the gospel. But if you're here 
and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, will not repent of your sins, confess your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism to arise and walk in the newness of life. And when you've done that, you can go to home tonight knowing that if your life was taken from you, you would have the reward of heaven. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but somewhere along the line you say, I've not lived as I should. Then if it's of a private nature, you can take it to the Lord privately in prayer. But if of a public nature, we will gladly pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. But no matter what your need is, if we could assist you this evening in any way, would you not come forward as together we stand and as we sing?